You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number five of Myth Behaving and we are recording on February the 24th. I'm Carla Clifton and I am joined today by my usual co-host, Mayor Wilson. Hello, Mayor. How are you? Hey, Carla. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How's everything over there in East Texas today? Well, I tell you what, it's doing pretty doggone good. It's been kind of a hectic weekend, but the sun is shining. It's beautiful. It's about 73 degrees outside, and I don't have a thing to complain about. What about you? It's been very quiet here this weekend, just hanging out with the dogs and playing games and reading and reading and reading. Well, that's a good thing. That's what It is a good thing. When you're not writing, you're reading, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a very good thing. Just want to mention that each Myth Behaving show does feature a very special guest, and it's usually from the literary world, and it could be a writer, a publisher, an agent, an editor, anybody else that we can connect with that has something to do with the world of publishing. Plus, we have several special segments relating to reading or writing. in the library of a myth behavior. That means it's time for something from the library of a myth behavior, which of course is me. Today I'm recommending Getaway by Lisa Brackman. Getaway is a, a thriller and it is, this thriller is really different. I haven't read one like this in a while and the heroine is totally likable. I just fell in love with her immediately. But she's on this vacation in Mexico that just turns into a nightmare. And there were times in the book where I literally got the chills from from this. The pace is so fast and the tension just ratchets up and up and up. And you always have this feeling in the book that something is just off kilter and not quite right. And I never knew what I was going to come, what was going to come next. I loved it. So if you get a chance, Getaway is an awesome book. You should pick it up and read it. Well, I guess that means our special guest today is Lisa Brackman. Welcome to the show, Lisa, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm really happy to be here, and thanks for having me. We're really thrilled to have you chat with us. Of course, Getaway is your second novel, and it follows up uh, Rock, Paper, Tiger, which was your critically acclaimed novel. Let me spit that one out. Critically (laughs) acclaimed novel, which was set in China. Uh, I love how you've got all of these exotic locales in your books. Lisa, what got you into writing thrillers, though, and suspense novels? Well, um, I've been writing most of my life, and I finally came to a point where I decided, you know, if I want to do this as any kind of a career and write something that I can sell, I need to write something that I can sell, you know, which which sounds really simple, but it, it was a hard thing to come to. So... I I thought about Rock, Paper, Tiger. I thought about what is it that I know about that I can write about uh, that might be a, a little bit unusual that other people can't necessarily bring to the table. And I have a background um, with contemporary China. I've been going to China for over 30 years. And I thought, well, you know, I could set something in China. I haven't seen a lot of, a, a lot of uh, Western writers using uh, modern China as a setting. 
And then the other part of it was, well, you know, what's something that I'm passionate about, which to me oftentimes translates as what's something that I'm very angry about. Um, and that was the Iraq war and the war on terror. So I just went, well, how can I put these two things together? You know, and it was kind of the, the writing equivalent of juggling a bowling ball and a blowtorch and a chainsaw, you know, because they were elements that didn't necessarily automatically go together. So, you know, in spite of the fact that I wrote this book with the intention of writing something that I could sell, it, it came out a little weird and it straddled a, a bunch of genres, but the strongest thread in it was the suspense aspect. So basically um, the rewrite that I did, and this was when I started working with my first agent, Nathan Bransford, was to carve away the things that took it out of the suspense genre and sharpen up the things that would place it more firmly in that genre. Because, you know, a part of producing a book that you can sell is producing a book that the buyers know where to put it on their shelf, whether it's a literal bookshelf in a brick and mortar book, uh, bookstore or a, a classification on an online shopping site. So that was how I came to it. It's the kind of thing that I naturally tend to write. And it was also a a decision that, you know, I, I want to have a career doing this. So I, I'd better figure out what kind of book I can write that I can sell. Of truth and misery. Of truth and misery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. Lisa, feel free to answer this if you will. You don't need to know anything about a location. You can simply place your characters there and let your imagination do the work. Is that of truth or of mythery? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm never one to, to place an absolute on anything having to do with writing because what works for me isn't necessarily something that's going to work for somebody else. That said, and, and, and it, it also depends on the type of book that you're writing. Um, that said, my books tend to be very bound up with setting and bound up with place. And I don't think I could do a credible job with that if I hadn't actually been to the place that I'm writing about. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't some fakery involved. For example, with Rock, Paper, Tiger, a whole bunch of it took place in Iraq and, and at the time. Um, you know, things were blowing up pretty good in Iraq, so it wasn't like I could go there and, and do the research on the ground. But I had the advantage of uh, I'd worked with a woman who had done uh, several trips to Iraq and, you know, I had helped her uh, write a segment about her adventures. So when I was doing that a couple of years prior to writing Rock, Paper, Tiger, I would ask her about sensory details because that to me is how you bring writing to life. So I had some research to draw on. There was a lot of research out there on Iraq. Um, you know, we live in an era where things tend to be very documented, even in especially wars. Um, so in order to compensate with not actually being able to go there, I really overcompensated with the amount of research I did. And it also worked in that case because um, the main character, her environment in Iraq was mostly very restricted to, uh, you know, a forward operating base. So it's sort of a claustrophobic environment. Um, I don't think I would feel at all comfortable writing a novel that was set, say, in Iraq that, that went beyond that, that was going into the cities and, and um, you know, that was trying to look at the, the, the place in any real depth. So I tell people, I, I think it's in general, it's a mistake to set something in a place you haven't been. 
Um, you know, it, it always makes more sense if you can make it work to, to, to set your work in, in a location that you're familiar with where you can pull out these little details that are going to bring it to life uh, for your reader. Because I think it's a lot harder to bring a location to life if you're, you're having to rely on, on research, um, no matter how thorough you are. So I wouldn't call it a myth, but I, I, I think, you know, as a general rule, um, your writing is going to be richer if you set it in a place that you're familiar with. And, of course, you feature first China, which you visited, and then Mexico in, in Getaway. Mexico's in Getaway. China, of course, is uh, Rock, Paper, Tiger. Why did you choose those two locations for those two books? Well, in the case of China, as I said, it was because it was a, an environment and a location that had not really been used a lot by um, American novelists, at least that I was aware of. And when it was, it tended to be period stuff, you know, foot binding and tragedy and, and, and all of that. And and I wanted to do something that showed today's China, which is very different, I think, than, than the image that a lot of people have of it in their heads if they haven't been there. You know, the contrasts between 5,000 years of tradition and then these hyper-developed modernizing cities are just really fascinating. And, you know, the aspects where you've got, you know, high-speed bullet trains combined with villages that don't look very much different than they did, you know, a couple hundred years ago, except maybe they have satellite dishes. And, and it's just, it's such a rich environment and, and one that, um, I, I felt that I could do a credible job presenting to people that weren't familiar with it. So that was that. was that. And then having written that book, um, it wasn't clear at the time that it was going to sell, so I didn't want to go to the same well in the same location to write my second book. And I actually thought, well, let's see, you know, what what can I write about? Where can I write about, you know, that's a place I've been to enough times where, you know, I have that familiarity where I can bring the setting to life and really have the setting be a sort of a character in the book. And Puerto Vallarta, um, which is a lovely city, by the way, and, and I would not want Getaway to scare people off of going there. Um, it's a great place to visit. I'm going to go there later this year. Um, you know, it's wonderful. But I'd been there enough times where I thought, yeah, you know, I, I, I can I can make this work. You know, I, I can use this as a setting. And it had enough sort of noirish aspects that, that I thought it would be, you know, again, a, a fertile place to set a suspenseful kind of a book. So, and they, yeah, they worked. One of the things I like about your books is the fact that your settings, you, you mentioned them almost as a character. And they really that comes through in your writing because they are very vibrant and you get a very very clear picture of those areas. So you do that very well, Lisa. Well, I thanks. I appreciate that. And, and you know, and it really is one of the, the aspects of writing that I enjoy. Um, I don't necessarily think that I would have been a good journalist, but there is a certain journalistic aspect to what I do. I really like to go to a place and observe it and, and take its measure. So it, it's, it's, it's a part of the writing that, to me, uh, is particularly satisfying. It's time for MythPrint, Tips and Tricks of the Industry. It's time for another one of our special segments. MythPrint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. Lisa, do you have any tips for our listeners about writing in general that you can share? 
Well, I'll make the same disclaimer that I did earlier. I think everybody's process is individual, and I'm not one of these people who says you have to do it this way or you're not going to be successful because that's just that's just really simplistic. Um, a couple of general things, though. Um, it's very hard to time the market just because somebody is making a lot of money writing, you know, uh, uh, romance books featuring vampires and werewolves or whatever doesn't mean that you should try to do it because by the time you get around to doing it and sell that book or publish that book, that ship may have already sailed. On the other hand, if you're truly passionate about writing that book, then write it. I, I think for the most part, although there are again, are always exceptions. If you write what you're passionate about, the result is going to be a better book and therefore a more sellable book than if you try to time the market and write something purely because you think it's commercially viable. I, I, I don't think that's a good way to go. Um, the second, um, I think it's very helpful to treat your writing like a job. Um, that means, you know, don't depend on, on the, you know, the muse or whatever, you know, to fill you with inspiration before you sit down and write. Um, for most people, and especially if you want to have a career as an author, you know, that just ain't going to happen. Um, a lot of it, you simply have to, you know, put your butt in the chair and put your time in. And that's how you, you get the muses to come to you if, if you believe in that sort of thing. Um, I also found that, that treating writing as a job uh, helped me depersonalize the process somewhat. You know, I was always so nervous and so embarrassed about showing my work to other people um, because it felt too close to me. And if I went, you know, this is my job, this is my job to write this book, then it was much easier for me to see the work that I was doing as a product that was separate from myself and something that, you know, I mean, I'm not going to lie, my ego is still incredibly bound up in it, but but something that I could have enough separation from that I was much more comfortable showing it to other people. Um, so, you know, if you treat yourself as a professional, other people are more likely to treat you as a professional. And I think that's really important. You know, you you can't conduct yourself just because you're doing a job that is a creative job doesn't give you license to be, you know, a flaky artist who blows people off, who's unprofessional, who's nasty. You know, you, you, you need to treat yourself, you need to treat your business relationships the same way that you treat relationships with any other business that you're in, and that is as a professional. So, you know, that's what I got <laughs> for what it's worth. That, those are both very, very wise tips, and I hope anybody who's listening to this and plans to go writing takes those tips to heart because she is a very wise lady that just said this. Writing as we both know, it's a process. It's a process of so many things that, that go into being a writer. What do you love most about what you do, Lisa? That's a hard question. I mean, I certainly like being able to schedule things on my terms. I like, I mean, the thing you have to understand, again, if, if you're doing this as a professional even though this is the product of your imagination and, and it's your labor, you still are collaborating with other people. So it doesn't mean that you create this thing that's untouchable. You you have to be willing to accept critique. You have to understand that, that there is a collaborative aspect in that your work is going to change based on the kind of feedback that you get. That said, there are very few jobs out there that are so much purely a product of your own imagination and your own skill and uh, that's very satisfying. Um, it's very satisfying to sit down and create something from nothing. It's very satisfying to 
be able to weave a lot of different strands together into a book that makes sense. At least I hope it makes sense. You know, it's, it's, uh, wonderful to be able to go to a place, uh, make observations about it and use that material in, in your creative work. It's wonderful to have an issue that you're passionate about or upset about or angry about and be able to use that as something that's running through your work. It's, it's, it's fun to write a really good sentence. Um, it's fun to just come up with lines that it's like, okay, man, that's funny. I'm really happy that I thought of that. Or that's a pretty, this is a really beautiful passage or, you know, this is something with some, some real emotional punch, you know, and the thing about writing, writing a novel is that it's a lot of work. Novels are, you know, duh, long, many, 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 many pages. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, you can put as many hours as you want to put into it. It, 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 it's going to take those hours and it feels really good to me to have accomplished something that was a complicated task that involved a lot of different elements and a lot of different ways of thinking and that you managed to get it all done. You know, it feels great to get it done. Speaking of being a busy lady, you have two books out and a third coming out in June of this year. Is there anything about the process that you don't like? Um, I've been very fortunate with the people that I've worked with professionally. I've had two great agents. Um, the publisher I work with, Soho Press, is, it's a it's a really great outfit run by really wonderful people who are passionate about what they do. And I've had a lot of fun with the pop, with the publication process and I am well aware that this is not the case for every author. So I consider myself very fortunate. Um, that said, there are so many aspects of being published that you're not in control of. You don't know whether the bookstores are going to put in big orders for your book. You don't know whether you're going to get reviews. You don't know what the critical response or the sales response is going to be. And that level of uncertainty, um, you know, can be kind of a tricky thing. And um, you really have to surrender to the fact that, okay, I, I don't get to control this. I can't control how people respond to my work. I can only write the best book that I can write and do whatever I can personally do to promote it and uh, hope for the best. But, you know, I, I think writers to a certain extent, I mean, we have to be control freaks because so much of what we do is bound up in creating an environment that we have complete control over. And this is a part of the actual business and your actual job that you do not have that same kind of control over and you got to accept it and move on. That doesn't make it easy. As someone that is a control, control freak myself, <laughs> I totally can relate. I totally can relate. Yeah, I always say, you know, writing, if you're not bipolar, you will be because, uh, you know, there are just aspects of it that it's always going to be a really up and down business. And and um, as much as you try to maintain your equilibrium throughout the process, it's not an easy thing to do. I bet not. You know, authors work in so many different ways, you know. What we would like to know is, are you a planner that outlines everything, making extensive notes and all of that sort of thing and, and blow by blow, that sort of thing? Or are you a pantser, flying by the seat of your pants and letting the book go just wherever it wants to go? 
Well, I'm going to quote uh, the Scottish crime novelist Ian Rankin here. Uh, he once said, if I knew what was going to happen, why write the book? So that puts me pretty firmly in the pantser category, um, which is not to say that I have absolutely no idea where it's going. Um, I've actually written a book or two where I, I haven't had a, a, a lot of a notion of where it was going. And that's pretty hard. It's a hard thing to do when you really don't know where it's what it's about. And the the process of writing the first draft really is a process of discovering, oh, what is this book? You know, who is this person? What's this about? So well, the way I like to do it is to have some signposts, you know, some usually I'll have some critical heavy scene, you know, in my mind that I know is going to happen. I may not know exactly what it is. I may not know why it's going to happen, but it's something that I'm building toward. Um it's been interesting uh, because the book that's coming out in June is a Rock, Paper, Tiger sequel, so it features um, the, the same main character and, and some of the same peripheral characters. And that was much easier to write because a lot of this process of discovery that I, I went through in the first book, well, all that groundwork's been laid, so you're, you're starting with, with, with a framework. But, you know, in, in terms of the plot, I, I, I have these signposts um, – or, you know, however you want to put it, places along the road that I'm I'm trying to get to. I just don't know exactly how I'm going to get to them. So, you know, I, I know a lot of people use um, all kinds of writing software, like was it Scribner? I, I don't do anything like that. I've got my document that is the book, and then next to it I have another document that it, it's my notes, and it's just whatever occurs to me along the way that I might want to I might want to incorporate. Um, links to articles that I feel are relevant, just like, oh, hey, what if I, you know, what if I do this at some point? So that that's how I do it. And again, that's just my method. And it's certainly not one that I would recommend to everybody. You you mentioned briefly that there's a sequel to Rock, Paper, Tiger. And of course, that's Hour of the Rat. And that's due out later this year. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Well, uh, Hour of the Rat features the the main character from Rock Paper Tiger, uh, Ellie McEnroe, who is uh, a, a sort of an accidental Iraq War vet. She uh, joined the National Guard as a young woman just out of high school, so she could get health insurance and maybe some money for college, and found herself um, uh, in Iraq um, serving as a medic. And uh, that didn't go particularly well, um, and she ends up in Beijing, China through a series of events, which I won't relate here, and manages to create a sort of life for herself that's, that's working okay. And the second book takes, uh, takes up basically where Rock, Paper, Tiger left off, where, you know, she has this life that she's kind of enjoying, where she is an artist representative for some up-and-coming contemporary Chinese artists, um, including one who is very politically controversial and who's sort of disappeared. Unfortunately for Ellie, things can't go smoothly for, for too long or, you know, well, we wouldn't have a book for one thing. Um, and she decides to do a favor for one of her old army buddies whose brother, younger brother, has disappeared someplace in China. And the younger brother apparently is not stable and they're very worried about him and, um, and ask if, if Ellie might be able to help find him. And Ellie decides for various reasons that she's going to go on this mission and, 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 and try to find her buddy dog Turner's missing brother. And of course, Ellie being Ellie um, gets herself into this huge mess um, involving 
um, a, a biotech company, um, maybe involving eco-terrorists, and there's a lot of cats in this book, too. So uh, that's kind of what it's about, and it's another sort of a surreal road trip. She goes a lot of places in southern China, and this time out, I, I, I tried to show some of the really beautiful places in China because there's some incredibly gorgeous uh, environments, and I wanted to share that with people, not just kind of the ugly, grimy, messy urban scene, um, but some of the natural beauty as well. I have to say something um, before we get into the next little bit. And when I read your books, I almost wish, wish there were pictures along yeah. with them because how you describe them makes me want to see them and go there, too. So just had to say that to you. Well, thank you. And actually, I, I do put up pictures um, on my website uh, now and again. And uh, I have a lot of, of photos from the areas that are that are featured in, in this book, although there is one location that I had to fake. And I think I won't tell you which one that is. You see if you can figure it out when you read it. <laughs> but uh, I've got I've got lots of pictures of some of this amazing scenery. And um, yeah, it's it's totally worth seeing. And if the book encourages people to go and visit you know, Yangshuo and Dali, for example, then my job is, you know, well done. That's great. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in the industry in the last couple of years. Do you feel the changes have impacted your own work? And if so, in what ways? And how do you feel about those changes? Well, okay. The first thing is I went out on submission um, right after, you know, the whole big collapse of the global economy thing happened. So, you know, I could not have gone out at a worse time than I did. And my book was out for over a year. And it really was only because um, my agent, who at the time was Nathan Bransford, worked incredibly hard to sell the book. And because Soho Press was willing to take a risk on a, on a, on a debut author. So I feel like I got started at a time when a lot of these changes that you're talking about, they were already well underway. Um, so I can't really say how much they've impacted my work because this is the environment that I've been functioning in since the beginning. I can say that there were some other houses that came close to buying Rock, Paper, Tiger and didn't primarily because they couldn't get the internal support when they went up the food chain. Um, I've, I've seen that happen. And, you know, book, a book that would have sold, uh, you know, a, a couple of years earlier. Well, it's not going to because no, nobody's willing to take the risk. So in that sense, yeah, my, my whole path to publication and, and the kind of publishing career that I'm having might have been different if I'd gone out a couple of years earlier when more publishers were, were willing to take risks on novels that are a little coloring a little bit outside the lines and, 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 and on a new novelist. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically the publishing reality as it is right now is the only one that I've known. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, and I, I think most aspiring authors that I know educate themselves about the business and they're all aware of that. It's very challenging. And, um, just as a word of advice or encouragement or whatever, don't take it to heart if you have a hard time selling it. It's not you. It's just a very tough competitive business and continuing to become even more so. Oh, and how do I feel about the changes? The one thing that I would say that that is very disappointing to me 
um, and not with my own publishing experience uh, with Soho, but in some other areas, is the extent to which larger publishers are risk adverse and are making decisions based on fear. And a lot of that is coming down, you know, because they're owned by larger corporate entities, it's, it's, it's coming from the very top and it's coming even from the corporate parent and, and not from the top of the house. And that to me is really a mistake on, on so many levels. You know, you can't develop a new author generally from one book that that's unless, you know, this is somebody who has won publishing lotto and gets one of those huge advances that garners so much publicity in and of itself that that becomes a marketing tool. Um, but this whole idea that publishers, the big, bigger publishers aren't investing in as much in building sustainable careers. They're not as investing as much into their mid-list artists. And the, the problem with that, if everything you're publishing is kind of, you know, um, Snooky's memoir or whatever, you know, you may, you may make a lot of money on the short term, but what you don't have is, is long-term growth. Um, it's the same kind of short-term thinking that, that affects a, a lot of, a lot of business, you know, next quarter rather than next year or 10 years from now. And in publishing in particular, traditionally, publishers make a lot of their money on their backlist. So if you're not developing authors who, who can write quality books for you that are maybe going to still be interesting to people 10 years from now, you're not developing that backlist. And, you know, and, and again, it just, continues to feed into the cycle of, okay, we got to find the next hot thing that we're going to pay a lot of money to publish and, and hope that it, it, it gets us that money back. But it's not anything that is particularly sustainable or, or looking toward the future. And I think that's really disappointing. And I think it's a, I think it's a big problem. If I were going to pick the biggest problem in publishing, it would, it would be that. I love your passion. Lisa, I love your passion. I love your knowledge, too, about so many things. Well, I, you know, take everything I say with a, you know, I don't know, a grain of salt, because I, I don't I, I try to stay current. I, I try to educate myself about the business, but there's a, a lot to learn. I'm not the most knowledgeable person out there. And other people, you know, they're going to have very different opinions than I do. So, you know, the, the one time I will ever quote Ronald Reagan favorably, trust yet verify, um, because I think that's really important. You know, if what I say sounds credible, that's great. And uh, I, I, I try to be, as, you know, I, I try to give as good advice as I can, but definitely do your own research and decide what works for you. The myth number is. And now it's time for Myth Nomer, our word for the day. In keeping with our theme today, the word is research. Even in my own urban fantasy, and I'm, I'm making stuff up here in urban fantasy, but even there, I spent quite a bit of time doing research, especially I, I I spent several days researching 8th century China, as a matter of fact, mm. we're back in China. Um, Lisa, we touched on research a little bit already, but do you have anything else to add about research and how important it is? Well, uh, my old profession, uh, I, I did research for film and television for many years, and I ran a research department. So um, I'm kind of a research maximalist. Um, I believe if you're you're presenting things as being factually accurate that they 
to the extent that you're able to make them factually accurate, they should be. You have an obligation to make them factually accurate. Um, I'm a research by the pound sort of a person. Uh, part of doing research, the process for me is I don't always know what it is that I need to know. If I'm researching an unfamiliar subject area, how could I? I don't necessarily know what's important. So I try to immerse myself in a subject uh, as much as I can. And that helps me narrow down on what it what it actually is that I need to know, if that makes sense. And then you go out and you hunt down those specific facts. But I think, you know, like with with uh, with, with with Rock, Paper, Tiger and and with Getaway, actually, I mean, you know, in Rock, Paper, Tiger, I, I did a lot of research into, um, you know, Americans in Iraq and, and aspects of that experience um, for Getaway. I did a ton of research into drug cartels. And the thing of it is, you don't really see a lot of that research, you know, in the in the literally in the text itself. It's not there. You know, I'm not writing nonfiction, so I'm not going to stop the action and, 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 and you know, with, with the dissertation on the, the structure of Mexican drug cartels. You know, I'm not going to do that. However, I believe that the deeper the more research you do and the deeper you get into it, that it really does in, inform the work um it makes the work richer um it's it's sort of like the it's the the iceberg of research underneath the little bit that's poking above the water that you can actually see in the book so um again no hard and fast rules but i i think the more you can do the better it's going to make your your, the better it's going to make your book i agree with that i mean that those days i spent researching eighth century china i think take it's about a paragraph Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's just like, okay, I read how many books and I spent how many hours and it's like, oh yeah, three sentences. <laughs> yep. All right. Now comes the fun part. If you could have a dinner party with any seven people, whether they are living, dead or fictional, who would you include? Okay. So can I just say that I really and truly suck at making lists of this sort? Um, I thought about this question because I, I had a warning that it was coming and I was like, I don't know. I, 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 my brain works the other way where it's more like, Hey, you know, would you like to have dinner with Abraham Lincoln? And I go, yeah, sure. That sounds like it would be really interesting. You know, I, I'm, I'm really bad at me at, at just keeping these kinds of things in my head. The one person that comes to mind, and this might be a little obscure, but it's it's a uh, uh, Zhou Enlai, and he was the first premier of the People's Republic of China, um, you know Mao's closest comrade in arms, and to me just an absolutely fascinating character on, on so many levels. You know he was um, educated, uh, he came from an old Mandarin official family that was you know had, whose fortunes had greatly declined to be sure, but he had a very different background than most of the the, the revolutionaries um, who who uh, fought for the People's Republic of China. Um, he had an international uh, he had international experience. He had spent time in France as a student. Um, he spoke some English. He got along well with foreigners. Um, you know, where a lot of the Chinese revolutionaries came from, from, you know, much more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, isolated sort of cultural backgrounds. They hadn't really, they didn't really have a lot of experience with anything outside of China and, and their own, you know, 
their own upbringing. So, you know, here's this guy who is a relative cosmopolitan compared to most of the Chinese leadership and who was also greatly loved by the people of China. He was known as the People's Premier. And, um, you know, the, the whole history of the, the founding of the People's Republic and the first 40 or so years of the, of the country is just these huge ups and downs and, and turmoils. You know, you had the anti-rightist campaign. You had the Great Leap Forward, which resulted in a horrific famine. And then you had the Cultural Revolution, you know, which was like, okay, things are back on track. Oh, no, not so much. We're going to turn everything upside down again. So through all of this turmoil, which was, you know, in general caused by the actions of the leadership um, and, and by Mao Zedong in, in, in particular. Again, this is a long, <laughs> long story. Uh, Zhou Enlai was seen as a, as a force for stability, for logic, for ration, for reason, and as someone who really cared about the welfare of the people and, and, and creating a, a stable country. All of that said, he implemented Mao's policies. So, you know, I want to ask him, so what were you thinking here? You know, uh, did you believe in, in, in these things? Uh, you know, what, what did you really believe in? Why didn't you make a, 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 a stand, um, you know, against some of these policies that you seem to know very well were going to be hideously costly to, to China, to, to China's people, to the economy and to the Chinese state? You know, what was all of that about? Um, I, I tend to be drawn to, to, to characters that are, that are somewhat am, ambivalent and ambiguous. And, uh, no one has ever, he, Joe didn't leave a lot of his own words about why he did the things that he did. So I'd really like to ask him and get to the bottom of it. So instead of seven people, you want to have Joe over seven times? Nah, nah, just, just, <laughs> just one, <laughs> one, one good dinner, one good dinner will do. I'm sure there's some other people that would occur to me, but that, that's always been the person that, you know, um, that I've most most would have liked to have met because that's another sort of one of my long term projects. Uh, it's anyway, but I digress. <laughs> Lisa, what question you've been interviewed so many times, but what question do you never get asked that you wish someone would ask you? And what would you answer that? You know, I wouldn't say that, that there there is a question that I never get asked that I wish someone would ask me. Um, I'm I enjoy discussing some of the larger themes of the stuff that I write. And I do try to include those, you know, kind of with this, um, you know, within this uh, structure of having a suspense thriller, I try to embed some kind of deeper issues there. And um, these are things that I generally don't get asked about, although, you know, I have. So I don't want to say that no one ever asks me, but it's probably uh, they're probably not discussed very frequently. It's, it, you know, mostly I get a lot of questions about setting and a lot of questions about, you know, how did you create this character and that kind of thing. But it would be the deeper themes that I try to embed in the work. Good answer. Very good answer. Everyone has their own personal myths things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true. Their own personal myth behaviors, if you will. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? You know, I really don't know because I, I don't really know what people think about me necessarily. You know, I'm, I'm not that, I'm not that aware of, 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 uh, you know, having this repu, this outsized reputation. You know, I, I mean, I don't really think that I do. Um, I, I think one thing that has come up 
you know, it would be people sort of equating me with um, not so much with Michelle, the character from Getaway, um, but but Ellie, the character from Rock, Paper, Tiger. And, um, you, you know, your characters are inescapably parts of you. You created them. But, uh, you know, by the same token, they are characters. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really not quite uh you know the the self-destructive percocet popping um you know um you know you know young wild thing you know that ellie is um but i don't know I, uh, it's a good question and i i'm 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 just not really sure how it applies in my case that but that's one that's a good one here's another one here's the opposite side of that coin what myth behavior do people believe about you that really is true? I think I have the same answer to that. I really don't know. I'm not sure, you know, um, I don't know exactly what people do believe about me. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. This is very interesting because I think, you know, definitely everybody constructs their own personal mythology and they construct a, 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 a character of themselves, almost a caricature of themselves. And one of the things, you know, as I've gotten older, I really have tried to get away from that. I'm, I'm trying to act, you know, in the world without so many, um, layers, uh, of, of artifice. Um, so I hope that what you see is what you get. Um, I, I'm not really sure if it's true though. Uh, so, you know, um, I like to travel. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, you know, I don't know if that's a myth, but it's true that I do. And, uh, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty smart person. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that. And, uh, I care very deeply about, about the work that I do. Um, and I, and I hope people think that of me. Um, I was going to say. One of the things that comes through to me about you, because um, I've known you for so long now, well, for a year, that's a long time in our world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, is your passion about things? I mean, you're passionate about so many things, and I, I think that that's a that would be uh, something that really is true about you, is your passion comes through in everything you do, I think. Well, I hope so. And, you know, the whole thing of it is, is that passion is one thing, but, you know, it needs to be connected to action. And that's the part that I'm kind of working on. Um, I am passionate about a lot of things. Um, and I hope that I'm able to act on that passion and do positive, positive things in the world with it. And, and, and I'm still working on that. I think all of us are working on that. <laughs> Some more than others, some more than others. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you again for being our guest. You have just been such a pleasure. I, I feel like we're able to, to get to know you just a little bit better. And I know that our listeners have as well. And we want to thank you for coming. And if you don't mind, take a moment to share your social media information and let us know how people can get in contact with you. Well, first off, I want to thank you again for having me. Um, it's really been a lot of fun, and um, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, social media me, that would be, uh, if you go to my website, which is uh, the usual www.lisabrackman, um, Brackman with two N's, 
www.lisaforbes.com. That has the links to everything else. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Lisa Brackman Author. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, and my handle there is Other Lisa. And those are the main those are the main social media things that I do. And I'll have Lisa's information up on the website as well, so you can just go click her links there. Oh, and I just started a newsletter, so anybody that wants to sign up for my newsletter, I promise it will only be an occasional newsletter because I'm way too lazy to do it more than, you know, maybe maybe six times a year or if I get really ambitious uh, once a month, although I don't think the once a month part's going to happen. <laughs> I, hope, I hope to get one out in May. That's my plan right now. Well, we're looking forward to that. I know I am. And I do appreciate you taking your time to be with us today. I think you've given us so much great information that uh, other writers and your readers as well uh, can digest. And I wish you the very best of luck for your continued success, especially with Hour of the Rat coming out soon. I know that's going to be as big a smash hit as your others are. Well, I hope so. And remember, everyone, you can go and check us out at MythBehaving.com. We'll have more information about Lisa Brackman and links to her books. You can also read her bio and find links to her social media and all that good stuff right there, right off the MythBehaving.com website. And don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or listen to it right on the MythBehaving.com website. And while you're at iTunes, be sure to take a moment to leave us a positive feedback. We need to move our way up the iTunes ladder, and that's the only way we can do it. So please, if you've not done so before, take a moment, leave us a positive review. We really do appreciate it. Yes, we do. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Also, if you have a topic or a guest you'd like us to consider, please, you can contact us through the MythBehaving.com website. Just drop us a note and let us know what you think. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We really appreciate it. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are Myth Behaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. <laughs>